what if I told you there was a hidden code behind everything we perceive? Wow, what a very mysterious start. I've, I've always wanted to sound like one of those conspiracy theory podcasters, so now's my chance. You know, the sort who records from a dimly lit room and yells into a microphone for an hour in the hopes of convincing you of their loosely connected threads in exchange for cash, don't worry, you're good. This is part passion project, part public service. Maybe if I add an effect to my voice, make myself sound just a touch more mysterious, so you feel my voice is being suppressed by some invisible force. Perhaps the same invisible force that makes this secret code I've been talking about. Perhaps I could speak a little softer to give the impression that I live in close proximity to my oppressors, or that the CIA might be spying on me with listening devices like you'd see in a 70s TV show or a cartoon. Or maybe... Actually, I should raise my voice and be so angry and pissed off about the secret symbols tucked behind the fabric of existence that you hear my anger and it reflects the confusion within you. Then that confusion turns to anger because you're listening to me and now my voice dictates how you feel. Sorry for yelling, I'll stop now. If I can just consult my paper trail and red thread, yes, pro wrestling is indeed a part of this world and therefore must contain the same hidden code found everywhere. But it's especially found in media products, of which pro wrestling is. It's the, said the name of the podcast early. Just, you can cheer if you want, or just, just leave it there. I'll carry on. In fact, pro wrestling contains this code to such an extent that one of the leading theorists behind its analysis considered professional wrestling to be the purest and most refined example of its very existence. In this discussion, we'll find out exactly what this code is, what it means, and together, how we can use it to analyze wrestling and the entire world around us. Hello, dear listeners. My name is Matt Winter Watson, and I'm a massive wrestling fan and media nerd. I live and breathe analysis and spandex. Not that that sounds kinky. I don't I don't breathe spandex in a kinky way. I don't like I don't like huff it. Just wanna just wanna make that clear. But if you do, fair play. Please keep listening. Thank you so much for choosing this podcast out of the literally thousands available. Hopefully today I have an entertaining essay for you. Before I pick up and run with the thread I've now dangled in front of your face like a little tease, thank you so much for listening to episode one. The The feedback has been incredible. I'm genuinely amazed by how many people listened. I, I, I don't know anywhere near that many people. So word of mouth has worked in some way. If you sent it to a friend, if you sent it to a fellow wrestling fan, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely enough of a response for me to keep doing this for a little bit, so thank you. If this is your first episode, if you're just tuning into this for the first time, maybe go back and listen to episode one. I I stand by it as semi-decent content. 
Plus, I might use a couple of words or terms that we learned in that episode and apply them to this episode, so it just, it makes sense to listen chronologically. But also, I truly believe in the mantra, you do you, so just listen to this episode first and then the other one second, it's it's honestly fine by me. Please do subscribe to this feed if you haven't already, you can do that on your chosen podcast player. By the time you're hearing this, I'll be starting to do some of the research for episode 3, but I do have a few ideas for bonus content to sort of fill the time between between these sort of three to four week episode releases. A um, little bit more about that at the end of the podcast, but just if you are interested in hearing more, sort of maybe some tepid takes on various wrestlers or this kind of analysis on the modern product, just get in touch via Twitter at MattWWriter or the traditional way, the classic way, via email by sending your words to wrestlingismedia at gmail.com. I think I'd eventually get round to making a lot of that bonus content anyway, but if there's a particular demand, then please get in touch, let me know, and I'll make it faster. I think that's all the boring admin. Uh, thanks again for listening, but for now, let's get to the latest discussion. Semiotics is the name of the secret code we'll be talking about today. Not exactly the Illuminati, but trust me, those in positions of power who exploit it to profit from it are far more damaging to society than the wildly fictional Pyramid I-Men. I really do have to stop with the clickbait episode titles, that's two in a row now, but I think I'll keep it a thing until it stops being a cheeky secret between myself and those of you who so kindly decide to hit play. As long as you know you're being worked, it's fine, right? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. So semiotics. Semiotics means the study of signs, and signs in this case can be anything we perceive via sense in the world around us. Let's start by defining what we mean by a sign, because I'm not talking about road signs, although they are signs, okay? Not all signs are road signs, but all road signs are signs, yeah? You get it? You get it now? You're gonna need a little more? Yeah, that's fair. Okay, let's, let's try that again. A sign is anything that communicates meaning that is not the literal sign itself to the interpreter of the sign. Let's break it down. We're interested in two key terms here, the signifier and the signified. The signifier is the form the sign takes as we perceive it, and the signified is the intended meaning behind that sign. Traffic lights are often used as examples to quickly and briefly explain semiotics, and they're about to be used again right now. In most societies, a simple red light means stop, and a green light means go. Traffic lights don't have the word stop or go written on them, at least not in most cultures, just the signifier of the red and green lights. Although it should really be noted that the founder of semiotics, Ferdinand de Saussure, was a linguist, and he argued that words themselves are a form of semiotics. As the symbols of G and O pushed together, only means move forward because as a society we've decided they do. 
don't worry, we won't be looking any further into the semiotics of linguistics here in this episode, effectively spitting on the grave of the founder of semiotics, but I'm sure that's imagery he'd get a kick out of analysing. We understand that a red light means stop and a green light means go through the teaching of signs as a way of conveying meaning. As you can imagine, this is particularly useful while driving, as information needs to be conveyed quickly at high speeds, with an added awareness that male middle-class sedan drivers might be too preoccupied with their own repressed inner rage to actually read words whilst in motion. We'll definitely go into this further and use examples from wrestling to better illustrate it, but at this stage understand that signs and symbols are used to convey meaning every day in our society. A French essayist named Roland Barthes, old Roly B, if that's not too insensitive, which it is so I won't say it ever again, he took semiotics a step further. He spent time interrogating cultural materials by studying the signified behind the signifier, in order to expose how the bourgeoisie asserted their values through them. He's not quite as hypercritical and Marxist-leaning as the members of the Frankfurt School we discussed last time, but any time you go down the path of critiquing methods of capitalism, because nothing is beyond critique, you end up getting pretty close to Marxism and ultimately ranting about the dominant classes. Barthes theorized that for every sign, there was a second meta-language occurring behind the scenes. An ideal, or myth, as Barthes put it, is trying to be conveyed to the masses, and so the sign must be associated with the ideal in order to function as an effective sign. Another example? Sure, why not? A green bottle shape filled with a dark liquid is the signifier. A bottle of wine is the signified. But the meta-language, the myth, is relaxation, leisure, perhaps luxury or fine dining, or just a Friday night after a tough week at work. These are all the myths behind the signifier and the signified. And yes, eventually I'll stop saying those two words together with the beat of signifier and signified, but you're going to remember it now, so you're welcome. His theories were proven to have significant value in the 1950s, as the dawn of TV commercials were filled with this meta-language. Even advertising today does exactly the same for a lot of basic products. Society has evolved, and as has marketing, so it's not quite as clear-cut, but even if we look to a recent commercial for wweshop.com, we see the idea of a meta-language alive and well. Let's take a look. God, this bit would be so much better if it were a video podcast. Why not share it with a friend, and it could be one day. The phrase, more mixing it up, appears on screen, followed by a series of six interchanging products from a variety of superstars. The commercial closes with the phrase, find what fits you, 
while a female vocalist sings the following. I love how on-the-nose pro wrestling is about everything, and maybe that's why it's my favorite mass cultural product, because it doesn't hide behind the veneer of marketing. All of those elements of that commercial are so overtly saying, buy this and you'll feel great. Billion-dollar companies pay millions of dollars for perfume commercials to hide the capitalist desire for you to spend, spend, spend money that you don't have to spend. Whereas WWE pays like, I don't know, a few thousand to slam some graphics together to ultimately say, buy our shirt, it'll make you feel good. There's a, there's a cynical honesty to it. As a positive reading of this commercial, one that ignores the evils of capitalism for just about a second, WWE has successfully used signifiers to show they have a great variety of products available, as well as something for wrestling fans from all walks of life who like varying superstars, choice. They have successfully conveyed choice. And who doesn't like a bit of choice? Well, indecisive millennials, for one, but we're all working on it, I promise. Advertising and commercials are absolutely chock-full of semiotics, and it's honestly the one area of modern living that it's useful to apply semiotics to. Maybe next time you're watching Monday Night Raw Live, you masochist, look at some of the commercials and, and see what they're trying to tell you, not necessarily with the words on screen, although as we've discussed, they are also semiotics, but mainly the images. What, what sort of lifestyle are they trying to sell you on? And when you think about it for a second, does that actually line up with anything? Does wearing a $10,000 watch actually magically turn you into a billionaire? You might be smart enough to realize no, but drunk finance workers at 2am, driven mad by their own life choices, they might not realize and they must be placing the orders because these companies still exist. Okay, but you're, you're here for wrestling, so you can get media analysis elsewhere. What's interesting to us specifically today is that Barthes wrote an essay in 1954 titled The World of Wrestling, an analysis of the theatre of catch wrestling, the most popular form of professional wrestling in Europe at the time. He used semiotics to analyse the performance he witnessed, and it's his knowledge we'll build on in this episode, in order to perform a semiotic analysis of the modern performance, because... 70 years is a long time, and there are bound to be a few new signs in wrestling today. Something everyone, apart from Jim Cornette, is truly thankful for, because change is beautiful. There are so many more interesting aspects of semiotics. Look, I haven't even mentioned triadic signs, and they actually sound like they might have something to do with the Illuminati. Much, 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 and I add much smarter people than I have written so much more about semiotics. So go and listen to them if you want a more in-depth study, especially on the linguist side of things. I'd like to spend the bulk of this episode applying semiotics to professional wrestling, 
because that's what this podcast does that you can't get anywhere else. Maybe, uh, maybe for good reason. Time will tell. Thanks for listening. Now, I understand that semiotics can often seem like academics making academia out of nothing, but the awareness of semiotics is a useful tool everyone can use in an increasingly media-heavy and corporate society. It's a useful concept for seeing the meaning that certain brands, companies, or individuals are trying to convey. You start to notice patterns and trends in advertising and the media, and eventually you become so numb to blanket mass marketing that you never find yourself in a major chain restaurant again. Not because the food's bad, it's delicious, but it's out of a lack of respect for simple dated trickery, the sheer laziness of mass consumer capitalism. You know what, we did a lot of that kind of yelling in the last episode. Let's look at the imagery of wrestling. Look at the stare of the champion against the challenger. The irresistible force meeting the immovable object. So let's begin by analysing the basic body language and facial expressions of the faces and heels in pro wrestling. Because yes, expressions are signs we send out into the world. Try not to think about it too much, it'll it'll drive you insane. Faces and heels are the good guys and bad guys of professional wrestling, the heroes and villains. In his essay, Barthes makes the argument that everything in wrestling must be intentionally simple. As the audience must make constant readings throughout the 15 to 30 minute catch wrestling match. So here's what Barthes himself had to say, and no, I won't be doing a 1950s French New Wave accent, as as tempting as it is. Each sign in wrestling is therefore endowed with absolute clarity, since one must always understand everything on the spot. As soon as the adversaries are in the ring, the public is overwhelmed with the obviousness of their roles. As in theatre, each physical type expresses to excess the part which has been assigned to the contestant. It's why subtext is often hard to apply to pro wrestling as a genre. It's, It's been done, but it requires a great deal of effort on the part of the performer, and an even greater amount of effort for the consumer who is used to intentionally simple imagery. For example, you must show a close-up of a heel reaching for his brass knuckles, otherwise the audience will miss a clear point in the story. If a heel is shown to be playing with brass knuckles in their promos for months on end, but the camera misses their use in the actual match, the use of the sign of the brass knuckles, which in this case represents cheating and foul play, was implemented beforehand, so therefore it doesn't have to be shown in the moment. Either of these booking decisions is perfectly acceptable to convey the meaning intended for both the character and the story, It's just that one involves overt imagery in the moment, and the other implies a logical assumption that can be confirmed at a later time. The bad booking decision would be to have a heel show no interest in a foreign object before the match, only for the camera to miss their use of the brass knuckles and for the face to be knocked out for no reason at all. 
Simply put, wrestling is all about the visual, the seeing, the spectacle. Bards makes the case that pro wrestling is a terrific example for showing the theory of semiotics, as it's a series of constantly changing images between two or more opposing forces, where an audience, sometimes second by second, must understand which wrestler has the upper hand in that moment. If we look at some contemporary faces and heels now, we can see how well they convey their intended, signified meaning, and just from their entrances alone. Ah, King Corbin, Baron Corbin, Constable Corbin, Pope Corbin? No, that's silly. King Corbin might be booked in a series of tired, basic, and never-ending feuds, but his heel character work in terms of the visual spectacle is second to almost none. As King Corbin enters, he sneers and contorts his face into an expression of disgust and contempt for those around him. He even tilts his head back slightly to ensure he's looking down his nose at everyone. The crown, scepter, and even his obvious name, King Corbin, all connote royalty and the ruling classes. A bunch of people that most of us dislike and have our own contempt and disgust for. The way his face looks is the way he wants people to feel about him, and based purely on the visual alone, it works. Even something as simple as his above-average height but not quite reaching that giant level signifies a looming presence without a sense of jolliness. It's basically why tall psychopaths become CEOs and short psychopaths become Hollywood actors, so the camera can help compensate for their lack, hello Tom Cruise. And come on, academic analysis aside, who didn't have a guy on their high school football team called Baron, who looked almost exactly the same as Corbin, minus the crown, I hope? Sure, you know that guy peaked in high school, and as you get older, the anger left over from his bullying subsides in favour of a sympathy for someone who was told they'd have the world at their feet only to find nothing waiting for them after graduation. We all know the type. But King Corbin, the character, doesn't know that. So King Corbin, the person, pulls a shit-eating grin at the end of his entrance to let you know he's the guy who was supposed to peak in high school, but he didn't. He's on television. He's peaked right now, and he's better than you. And that's what makes him a good bad guy, booking aside. Let's look at a different kind of contemporary heel. Don't call her the queen of diamonds, hearts, or clubs. It's Shayna Baszler. As a performer, she also contorts and twists her face during her entrance, in order to connote general disdain. But crucially, Baszler's character is someone who doesn't necessarily think they're better than everyone on an individual level but that she's the best and most dangerous athlete in her division. Both the towel and mouth guard she wears to the ring, as well as the shadow boxing she does on the entrance ramp, all signify her seriousness as a sporting competitor. 
She comes from the world of MMA, sure, but that needs to be conveyed in around 30 seconds to a casual or returning viewer, and that's how you do it. And unlike Corbin, whose eyes are fixed on the people or screens of people in the arena, Baszler's eyes are fixed firmly on her opponent during her entrance, which signifies an intense seriousness for the task at hand. Combine this look with her overall imagery, and we know in an instant that Baszler is a legit fighter with an unnerving focus for defeating her opponents. In his essay, Bards, who, who by the way was easily the first smark in pro wrestling, like, the way he talks about the behind the scenes of the business in such a confident way, praising the performative aspects of the industry and calling people unintelligent troglodytes for not understanding that wrestling is mostly fiction, I don't know, like major smark energy from him there. In 1954 he was talking like this, Vince McMahon was nine. Yeah, Roland Barthes, the original smark. Anyway, in his essay, Barthes practically gushes over the nuances of the performances by heels in wrestling. Admiring the intense character work they had to do in order to make a room full of people feel a certain way about them. He doesn't have quite as many positives to say about the faces, referring to them as blander figures of the art. And now I'm picturing Bards in an NWO shirt in 1997, which is, well, that's, uh, that's, that's terrific imagery if you know what he looks like. Google him and join in on the joke. He's right though, it's much more difficult to convey goodness through signs and symbols alone. A bad guy, sure, you have them scowl and scream at the audience, incorporating a variety of props and costumes to accentuate this imagery. But what's a good guy supposed to do? They can smile, I suppose, but then that's one of the major criticisms of modern wrestling, that most good guys are happy-go-lucky babyfaces who just want to have a bit of fun, maggle. Although I'd argue that characters like Becky Lynch, John Moxley, and Drew McIntyre have done a lot in the last few years to counter this discourse. The industry still can't get a complete grasp on mid-card babyfaces, but they're much better at the top of the card than they were just two or three years ago. Perhaps a paradigm shift truly did take place. All of this feeds into the same idea you often hear from current and former wrestlers as they talk about how much easier it is to play a heel than a face. It's much easier to get a room full of people to pretend to hate you than it is to get a room to pretend to like you, and especially with the use of non-verbal signs alone, which is, that's a wrestler's entrance, is, it's all imagery. A good guy can talk you into being on their side, sure, but just smiling and waving to the crowd? I don't know, that's, that's sort of what we all do on a daily basis. Not exactly lots of crowd-waving, but we all try and smile, be polite, be kind to those around us, and be virtuous on an individual level. And we want even more from our performative heroes, for them to be above and beyond what we ourselves are capable of. Let's look at some contemporary faces who are doing more than just the smile and wave. Again, I'll be taking examples from WWE, as they are the entrenched cultural power who should always know better. Other promotions have artists who do this just as well, if, if not better. 
Leon Ruff enjoyed a short run as the NXT North American Champion this past fall. And while little has been done with him since, in the short time we witnessed his story, by sheer signifiers alone, he came across as a convincing babyface. At 5'7", he's quite short for a wrestler. Actually, that's just his build height. He's, he's probably shorter than that. But a short and competent wrestler always signifies an underdog. It's no secret that Rey Mysterio's height in the 2000s in the Land of the Giants really did help raise his babyface stock. Now, Ruff wore a smile to the ring, but more than that, he thumped his chest and threw his arms open in disbelief. He exaggerated wipes and stomps on the apron before pulling his signature pose on the ropes. And all of the above signify an excitable respect for the sport. Every aspect of his face and body language during his entrance communicated that he couldn't believe what he had achieved, but that deep down he always knew he would achieve it. Ruff's performance in the fall of 2020 is an example of doing the happy-go-lucky babyface the right way. He wasn't just content to smile and wave, he made us believe that he believed in himself, which in turn makes us believe in ourselves. And that's just from his entrance alone, when Damien Priest affixed the championship around his waist, only for it to fall down due to his body being so small. This connotes a childlike energy, like a kid putting on their parents' suit. Someone who has arrived before they maybe should have, but it's entirely endearing because they managed to do it anyway. It's real! On the opposite end of the babyface spectrum, where if you look like you can beat people up and don't mock the crowd on your way to the ring, chances are people are going to get behind you. Since evolving her look back in 2018, Rhea Ripley has had a superstar-like presence. It's, it's undeniable. Her large build connotes dominance, and her metal-inspired makeup and ring gear give her an edge over the majority of the women on Raw. Usually wearing all black, her entire aesthetic is one you would commonly associate with a heel. But we all know we live in a post-Attitude Era world, where the top face can wear black and look like a dangerous ass-kicker. Hello, Stone Cold! But it's Ripley's body language on her way to the ring, her projected signs, that really cement her as a fan favourite. She stomps her way across the entrance ramp before locking eyes with her opponent and sneering. Now, at the moment, that connotes the same sort of heelish behaviour that we see from Shayna Baszler. But, and this is crucial, Ripley then turns to the crowd and offers a wry smile while making eye contact with a member of the audience. Now, this sends the signified message of something along the lines of, can you believe this? She doesn't know what she's in for. Watch me kick her ass. Simply put, Ripley lets us in on her thought process by acknowledging our existence. Baszler doesn't care if we exist or not, she just wants to kill someone on national television. Ripley is someone who also wants to commit a massive murder, but she wants to do it for us, and that's that's beautiful. Let's 
let's support her and cheer her violent ways. And I think that's about it for analyzing wrestlers and- Oh shit, the music! I haven't mentioned anyone's music. Yes, that's right. Music choices in media texts also contain signifiers with a meta language. As we heard so overtly in the commercial for wweshop.com. 50% off tees, buy it now. Don't shop local, shop independent. Sometimes entrance music is a placeholder, especially on NXT or with wrestlers on AEW Dark, but once it's set, more often than not, the audio signifiers from the music can really cement the intended meta-narrative of a character. Ripley, for example, because we've just looked at Ripley, and of all the characters who've lost their first names, why has Ripley not lost Rhea. Ripley just sounds badass. It's it's like one of the only cool things from the 80s. Ripley, for example, has This Is My Brutality, screamed by a female metal vocalist before she even appears. This is as obvious and precise as you can get, but in wrestling, as Roland Barthes states, signs need to be obvious and precise, as scores of them might be happening all at once. Because of Ripley's look and choice of vocalist, we as an audience can believe that she's the one who's actually screaming it. Making whatever follows, the 2 to 22 minutes of brutality, truly her brutality. The grinding metal guitars complement her aggressive strides as though she's a killing machine whose body just sounds like that. And the word brutality repeated over and over in the song itself reminds everyone just what they're about to witness. Look, I've got I've got a few more things I'd like to talk about when it comes to semiotics and pro wrestling, but it occurs to me just now that there's so much to unpack in regards to entrance music and character, but I haven't written anything. Um, why not send me a DM on Twitter at mattwwriter or send an email to wrestlingismedia at gmail.com and send me a semiotic analysis of a wrestler's entrance music. I, I know you can do it. You're, you're intelligent. You get this. Pick one of your favorite wrestlers and tell me how their music amplifies and complements their character. And I guess, I'll, I guess I'll read some out at the start of the next episode. Well, that worked out quite nicely. Just managed to seamlessly plug the contact. I, I can't wait to hear what you find out. Okay, now let's perform a semiotic analysis of the wrestling itself. Not the pageantry of the entrance, nor the iconography of wrestling, which we'll discuss a little of at the end of the episode, but the actual bell-to-bell action, because it's it's got to mean something. Now, there'll be no hidden secrets revealed here. Obviously, we all know that wrestling is choreographed, and if you didn't, I'm sorry. There's also no Santa, no Easter Bunny, and no hope in this world. So, yeah, just thought I'd rip those off while we're while we're at it. Wrestling, wrestling is real, but it is choreographed. A semiotic analysis of bell-to-bell wrestling can only be performed if we buy fully into the kayfabe. 
At this stage, there's no use analyzing the structure behind the structure, although I'm sure we'll get to that around episode 17. Here, what we want to know is what a headlock symbolizes in a match from a narrative perspective. Not why Vince McMahon wanted these people to look strong and so Tyson Kidd produced these moves and Lars Sullivan performed them in the past tense. Plus, I don't know, wrestling is more fun to analyze this way. Not just from a semiotics perspective. I have this rather tepid take that smarks are the new marks. For there are no marks left in this world other than small children and those without exposure to basic media literacy, but for the most part, everyone knows that wrestling isn't 100% reality. And around five years ago, wrestling companies became aware of this too and stripped away certain levels of kayfabe through documentaries on the WWE network and social media accounts. Without getting too much into the take, because I might release it as a bonus episode and we have a theme for today's episode already, there's almost no use talking about wrestling in a smark-like way anymore. Like, what, what purpose does it serve? You've got people like Dave Meltzer who journal and document the industry, and that's, that's about all you need. The rest of us, as fans, should be analyzing the wrestling the way a mark would by dissecting the story presented to us instead of being interested in the backstage gossip. We'd all be healthier for it, and we might even manage to elevate pro wrestling to the pop culture heights of Marvel or Star Wars, if only we all stopped talking like TMZ gossip columnists. Anyway, that's a, that's a tangent for another time. Smarks are the new marks, and the big companies are well aware of it, and are actively working you, so Level up your brain and be an enlightened mark instead. Okay, that's that's enough of a tangent. Let's get on with the semiotics of bell-to-bell wrestling. I'm going to begin by reading two extracts from Barth's essay, The World of Wrestling. But understand that most of what he has written in this 10-page document can be used to help explain the symbolic meaning of pro-wrestling action. It is said that judo contains a hidden symbolic aspect. Even in the midst of efficiency, its gestures are measured, precise but restricted, drawn accurately but by a stroke without volume. Wrestling, on the contrary, offers excessive gestures, exploited to the limit of their meaning. Above the fundamental meaning of his body, the wrestler arranges comments that are episodic but always opportune, and constantly help the reading of the fight by means of gestures, attitudes, and mimicry, which make the intention utterly obvious. Now, if we strip away the academia, this is Bard's understanding fully that the whole match is a performance and that each movement by the wrestlers must convey some kind of meaning to the audience. So let's analyze some regular beats of a wrestling match, then use semiotics to derive meaning from these beats. Let's begin with the lockup. The lockup traditionally happens at the start of a wrestling match. Not all, but we can picture most regular matches beginning this way. 
Wrestlers engage each other, often in what's known as a collar and elbow tie-up, in an early test of strength at the advent of the bout. One wrestler tends to win this initial lockup and gains momentum for at least the following seconds and subsequent maneuver. Now let's look at what that means in terms of signs or signifiers for the audience. If a lockup happens, it signifies that the two wrestlers respect each other enough to want to engage in the artistry of grappling. The Cesaro vs Daniel Bryan match from SmackDown several weeks ago began in such a way. In fact, most contests without a built-in and entrenched rivalry will often begin with a lockup of some kind. This signifies a respect for each other, but more importantly, a respect for the sport at play. It's one of the reasons why the Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins rivalry from the end of 2018 was received so poorly by fans and critics alike. After weeks of attacks from Ambrose, as well as making a mockery of Roman Reigns' real-life cancer diagnosis, Seth Rollins decided to lock up with Ambrose at the start of their match at TLC 2018. The rivalry was dead for most the moment this happened, as Ambrose had committed some of the most heinous crimes in wrestling, and yet the symbol of mutual respect was shown at the start of the match. Narratively speaking, a match following a blood feud should never begin with a lockup. It it sends the wrong symbolic message to the audience and in no way complements the grander story being told. There are narrative ways around this, of course, because in wrestling, you build your own kayfabe. The wrestling promotion Ring of Honor, for example, uses the Code of Honor, a handshake between opponents before the bell rings. And this signifies something very similar to the lockup, except it removes the implied respect for each other and cements the respect as part of the sport itself. If WWE had a code of honor system in place, perhaps critics wouldn't have been so taken aback by the collar and elbow tie-up between Rollins and Ambrose, but they don't and they were, so yeah, it was, it was bad. The opening signs in a wrestling match need to be crystal clear. These are the seconds and minutes where you're asking the crowd to come along with you on this narrative journey. You can make slight slips in the, the 10th or 15th minute, but those opening minutes are crucial from a narrative perspective. Now let's talk about strikes in wrestling, the kick-punch action that tends to make up the majority of the opening few minutes of a standard WWE match. Now, depending on the story being told, strikes can mean a variety of different things, which, which sounds like a cop-out. But all of them connote aggression, especially strikes to the face or anywhere else that's particularly mushy. If the strikes are methodical, they connote some levels of respect, but if they're frenzied, they signify a much more personal piece of combat. Simply put, if the strikes in wrestling look like the first round of a boxing match, the wrestlers don't necessarily dislike each other as individuals. But if they look more like the punches thrown in a knockout round of a boxing match, the wrestlers likely have a deep hatred for one another. Strikes can also signify fortitude and resiliency. In Japan, 
backhanded chops and chest strikes are often given for wrestlers to feel each other out to find out to what extent each competitor is willing to go in this particular matchup. Are they delivering hard strikes to each other early on? Then come the final five minutes, we'll be seeing brain busters and top rope neck breakers. Whereas softer strikes will likely lead to a more respectful exchange of signature moves or just simply map-based roll-ups in the closing moments. Next time you watch a big pay-per-view level match, something they really give time to, pay attention to the kicks, punches, chops, strikes, uppercuts and thrusts to see if their level of intensity helps to inform the direction the match takes. Very good wrestlers build these small signs into the larger narrative of the match, and insanely good wrestlers utilize strikes to inform the overall rivalry. Minoru Suzuki and the aforementioned Shayna Baszler are two artists who come to mind. Then you have the setup moves, the maneuvers that place wrestlers in a state of motion or specific position in order for a more impactful move to be delivered. We're talking your Irish whips, your kicks to the stomach, ranas of all shapes and sizes. Breaking kayfabe a little here because the selling, the performed effects of combat, is crucial to delivering the correct sign to the audience. These are the moves that prelude something bigger. They signify that something is about to happen and you should pay close attention. Perhaps to look up from your phone after the last two minutes of punch kick. The aggressor performs the setup move, but the position the receiver puts themselves in is what truly signifies the call for attention. For example, someone flopping to the ground around three feet from the turnbuckle tells the crowd that their opponent is about to climb the top rope. So they signify anticipation, tension, and a crossroads of the match. Either a big move is about to be hit, or it will be countered and the cycle of violence will continue. Sometimes these transition moves will be before the first major impact move of the match, and sometimes they'll be right before the finishing maneuver. Either way, these kinds of moves inform the audience that now is the time to really pay attention because something that will alter the narrative of the combat is about to happen. And finally, you have those signature moves, the high-impact end-of-match maneuvers that signify so, so much. Even if a wrestler is making their TV debut, a match will still build to a big move delivered by the performer. We may not have seen that move performed by that particular individual before, but through the language of wrestling, ideally combined by an excitable commentator literally yelling out the name of the move, we understand that this move is the end goal for this particular wrestler. That if they can hit this again in future matches, it'll all be over. Signature moves and what's known as high spots are interesting because they're the only maneuvers that lead to legitimate near falls to kick out at 2.9 seconds in modern pro wrestling. Back when Bards analyzed wrestling in the 1950s, wrestlers weren't so neatly branded, and any impactful looking move could lead to a pinfall. In a contemporary setting, wrestlers rarely win matches with random maneuvers and instead they look to deliver a particular move to their opponent. 
in order to offer a sign for audience members to look out for in future matches. Jeff Hardy is a great example of a classic wrestler who understands the language behind telegraphing these particular moves. If he thrusts his fingers into the air, he's signaling that he'd like to hit a twist of fate. If he takes his shirt off, he's probably going to climb to the top rope to deliver a swanton bomb and excite the 30-year-old audience members who used to have a crush on Jeff Hardy as a teen. Hardy offers a series of signs for the audience to pick up on. Signs that themselves act as a prelude to the most important sign of the match, the finishing move which supports Barth's idea that wrestling is a series of signs experienced sequentially and with clear structure, which explains why the opening essay of his entire book on semiotic analysis was about pro wrestling. To post-structuralists, pro wrestling is the ultimate example of signs at play. Much like classical Greek theatre, wrestling is coded signs simplified down to their base level. But unlike a Greek play, they're fired at you rapidly and in quick succession. There's a scene in the Netflix series Glow, which is terrific. If you haven't seen it and don't know anything about wrestling, that's a great place to start. In the first series of Glow, one of the lead characters finally understands wrestling as a soap opera, and she's then immediately on board with the story unfolding in front of her. But unlike when viewing a soap opera, she stands up, she yells, she engages, switching from boos to cheers, second to second. A well-written soap opera, and, and yes, they do exist, will hopefully make you feel all of these things too, but it's stretched out over a 30-minute serial, where the narrative events of a soap opera build to one or two key signs per scene. Whereas pro wrestling, while it engages with similar themes and emotions, is a constant flowing series of signs. And it can be argued that when humans are presented with constant signs, the response is to engage, to yell, to participate. We are both confused and enthralled by the action that we have no choice but to yell. And folks, that's what wrestlers do to us marks. It's what makes the greats so special as artists and performers. Their job is to dictate a series of controlled signs in order to make us respond in the way that they intend. An actor might have one or two signs to convey per scene, but a wrestler must convey sign after sign in an intense 15-minute display, or even 30 minutes, fuck it, an hour! It's why Iron Man matches are so impressive for more than just cardio reasons. Now, I don't know if wrestlers sit around in rooms and talk about signs, signifiers, and semiotics, but I would wager that the really good wrestlers are constantly thinking about every motion their body makes and how the story they want to tell can be told with every single movement. The goal for the greats is seemingly no wasted visual space, just tight and expressive action. And that's the semiotics of bell-to-bell -bell action. You can take this analysis deeper by looking for the specific signifiers behind specific moves. For example, Kane delivers a chokeslam because of all the moves available, that's the one that visually looks as though he's trying to plunge his opponents into the depths of hell. 
So once again, why not get in touch at MattWWriter on Twitter and offer me a semiotic reading of a wrestler's finisher? Tell me what the one-winged angel represents. I, I really do want to devote some time to thinking about it, but I've also got to move on to the third and final part of this episode, the iconography of props in professional wrestling. Iconography and semiotics have a similar background, one coming from the world of classical art and the other linguistics. So it's natural that in pro wrestling, a genre that combines the physical art of body movement with a hell of a lot of talking, that these two concepts would meet. So to end this latest episode, I'd like to talk about what the various props in wrestling represent and the meaning we attribute to them. Specifically the perceived value of championships and why this changes over time depending on how these props are represented. But first off, before anyone from the actual world of pro wrestling rightfully calls me a disrespectful piss rag for calling a championship a prop, I do understand the deep behind the scenes meaning of holding a title. It's the same as winning an Oscar or an award with some actual prestige. Your peers and predecessors recognize your abilities as a performer and trust you to hold the gold and represent the company. Out of kayfabe, those titles always mean the absolute world and are definitely more than just props. But in a show about putting on a show, where just a small minority of the audience still actually believes the performance is 100% real, most fans view titles the same way that Marvel fans view Thor's hammer or the Infinity Gauntlet. Wrestling titles are the Death Star plans, or the magical ring of power. They're not just any prop, they are THE prop and they're props that can carry and hold so much meaning or be nothing more than a simple accessory. A common phrase in WWE documentaries, specifically used by Triple H, is It's not the title that makes the man, it's the man that makes the title. Now, obviously in 2021, we can consider that a gender-neutral phrase. Thank you women's revolution and all hail Stephanie McMahon who birthed the first woman into existence, it's in the bible, look it up. This phrase has been imbued into WWE lore, both in and out of kayfabe over the last several years, and it's a sentiment that's hard to disagree with. A bad belt design can sometimes ruin the legitimacy of a championship. Looking at you, Bronze Penny Tag Team Title Redesign. Looking at you, Divas Butterfly Belt. Looking at you, Custom Spinner Belt that somehow remained a thing after 2008. But for the most part, it's how the champion is presented on screen while they're holding the title that makes the value. The generally well-respected and revered championship designs all have some similar design choices. They're big they're gold, and they have the correct amount of jewels on them. Not too much, but not too little. We're talking the aptly named Big Gold, the former World's Heavyweight Championship. 
the IWGP Heavyweight Championship and now even the AEW Championship all follow this classic design. This tells us that the audience likes big, simple designs as far as titles go. Wrestling is traditionally performed in large rooms of varying sizes within that large room spectrum. That was poorly worded. I, I don't know. The topic of this episode wasn't room sizes in wrestling, so let's just let's leave that sentence alone and say it was fine. Okay? Okay. The point is that the title needs to be seen by everyone in the room, so everyone knows that this person is the champion, the one to beat, the top guy, the target, the man with a bullseye on his back. All of those stereotypical phrases hold meaning as the belt itself symbolically represents all of those things. You could attend your local independent promotion and after the pandemic is over, please do, not knowing who any of the wrestlers are. But as soon as someone holding a championship belt steps out, as an audience, you know that this person means business, that they're the best, that this person is the kayfabe target of all the other wrestlers on the roster, and that they must have had to win quite a few matches to be holding it in the first place. All of this through the simple coded symbolism of a big gold belt. But with this comes pressure and expectation, especially at an independent level where you expect the person holding the gold to be one of the top performers in the building that night. And that expectation carries over to the major national promotions as well. If you tune into an episode of Raw, SmackDown, NXT or Dynamite, and you don't feel the title is on one of the best all-round wrestlers on the show, then as an audience, you'll subconsciously question the credibility of not only the champion, but the entire brand they represent. Now, weirdly for here in the West, we've had a solid stretch of top guys being top guys and doing it well. Becky Lynch seemingly began the resurgence of top title holders being unapologetic yet principled badasses. Moxley, McIntyre, Bala and Banks all followed in her footsteps with Reigns and Omega picking up the Reigns and making them mega, bad wordplay, these two are just as unapologetic in their top guy status, but they're flawed heels whose principles fall apart as soon as you look just a little closer. Terrific. Getting a little sidetracked there, but the point is WWE are correct to declare the man makes the title as the peaks and troughs in the critical reception of the company will support. But more than that, it's the iconographic meaning that the champion injects into their version of the title. I'm not talking as a physical representation like Jeff Hardy with his awful world title design in TNA, but through their words, their actions, and by virtue of holding the gold as these words and actions take place. Let's illustrate this with a recent example. Let's take John Moxley's fantastic AEW Championship reign. Moxley was obviously a fighting champion due to his many defenses, but he's also principled in who he is and where he comes from. Even in kayfabe, especially in his rivalry with Eddie Kingston, he has mentioned growing up in one of the roughest, poorest environments in America. He's a legitimate member of the impoverished class who has scratched and clawed to be at the top of the business he so regularly bled for. 
Even this past Sunday, a bloody pulp. Let's not mention the sparklers, though. And with this, with all of Moxley's words, the venom he spits at his opponents, and the value he places on perseverance and determination in the face of a difficult environment, that's what made him the perfect champion for the mood and moments we all faced in 2020. And every time he raised the AEW World Championship as he spoke these words, he essentially transferred his personal story and meaning onto the physical gold making the title truly his by making it a symbol of perseverance. The man makes the title. The crazy-ass ride I've been on for 16 years. But recently, now, finally, the whole world <clears throat> makes sense to me. How did I get here? How have I been AEW World Champion for so long? The answer is my dad. Six foot three, 250 pound, brick shit house. Box your ear if you got out of line. Scary. One day he's in town, he picks me up from the police station, but it doesn't hit me. He looks at me and he says something I'll never forget. He says, son, we're the good guys. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on around you, just remember. We are the good guys. They've tried to lie, cheat, and steal this championship away from me. I've been jumped, beat up, I've fought monsters, technicians, my own friends. But I always know what to do. I always have. We're the good guys. And now the whole world is bearing down on me. My body feels like hell. I can't even get out of bed in the morning. I have a pregnant wife at home. I'm holding two titles on two different continents. I got challenges come from every which way. What do I do? I know what to do. We're the good guys. So tonight, I'm going to walk to the ring. I'm going to sign that contract without any hesitation. I'm going to look into Kenny Omega's eye. I'm going to shake his hand and let him know in no uncertain terms, I am the best wrestler in the world. I am the AEW world champion. I am my dad's son. And I am John damn Moxley. And that is never gonna change. Hope I don't get a copyright claim for all that audio, but it's just, it's so good. There's so much more to the semiotics of iconography in wrestling, but so little time. We didn't talk about the vertical stripes on a referee's shirt being black and white to signify the binary word of law, right and wrong. We didn't talk about ladders and how the physical act of climbing for an opportunity signifies the hard work and effort that the wrestler has invested over the years. With each step they take, with each reach for the championship gold or battered briefcase or giant one ring, they connote the ladder that is a career in the entertainment business. I mean, shit, we didn't talk about the ring bell and how it was used initially in boxing as a tonal alert to the rowdy audience to signify the start of action. Bit of an obvious one, that one. Not as, not as clever. I should have 
I should have cut it, to be honest. I don't think it should have stayed in the script, but that sort of ruined the flow a little. I've, I've decided to leave it in. I'll take a breath and get back to it. I have cut the breath out, though. That's important to note. You have to make some edits. We didn't talk about the microphone, its inherent phallic symbolism, and how phallic imagery in classical art connotes power and status, thus giving the holder of the microphone a commanding presence whilst they're speaking. Of any sex or gender, you don't need a physical phallus for it to work. There's a reason the Britney Mike promos don't quite feel as impactful, it's because of the mic dick. And as with our semiotic analysis of a wrestler's entrance and their in-ring work, I'd absolutely love it if you sent me messages with your insight on the various props in wrestling. Do let me know if you find anything with the steel chair. I'm, I'm struggling to find any meaning in them beyond, there's a lot of them here and they hurt. Because the universe is chaotic and sometimes there's just no meaning. So that's wrestling's secret code, the same hidden series of symbols that's in every facet of every media product. Who needs unproven conspiracy theories when the entire fabric of society is built on codified objects to help existence run at a more efficient pace for, for better or worse? In fact, if you're already a wrestling fan, and if you're listening to this, I imagine you are, you'll likely be able to decode the semiotics of your own life faster than those who aren't fans. As Roland Bards himself insinuates, wrestling is pure semiotics, uncut with the messiness of misinterpretation if performed well. And if you're not a wrestling fan, well, Thank you for listening to this podcast, you maniac. But also, I really do recommend watching one or two of the many free wrestling matches available on YouTube. Look for the signs, decode the behaviours of the wrestlers, the way they move and how they connect to the audience through overt body language and coded messaging. Use pro wrestling as a crash course to help you see the signs in your day-to-day -day existence which is the real tool to take away from this discussion. So much of modern living is the buying and selling of products that no one actually wants or needs. Premium chocolate bars are made by the same machines that make store brand chocolate, with the exact same ingredients, but it's the semiotics of the packaging and advertising that make them feel more luxurious for three times the price. That's just one example, but high-end goods really are the main offenders. Perfume costs nothing to make. Decoding the semiotics of our society is one of the only ways you can beat the system without participating in a full-blown revolution. Unhappy with the greed and corruption permeated by billionaires from their literal ivory towers? Then decode and demystify the language they use to manipulate emotion that makes them rich. And then after you finish battling systemic manipulation, go home and watch a movie, play a video game, or even watch professional wrestling, and remind yourself that signs and symbols were first used to communicate stories.
narratives of pure escapism or deep introspection. Either way, it's semiotics used for relative good rather than the exploitation of others. That's pure early human. That's making hand gestures around a campfire to evoke laughter. That's, that's storytelling. It's, it's beautiful and it belongs to us. All of us. Thank you so much for listening to this latest discussion. It was a lot of fun to make. I, I normally can't turn my brain off from analyzing media products, specifically commercials, through a semiotic lens. So it was nice to turn the lens onto pro wrestling for once, something I'd never really done before. This was this was all new analysis for me. And yeah, it was it was a real blast. Remember to get in touch at MattWWriter on Twitter, wrestlingismedia at gmail.com via the email. Just with any corrections, perhaps you're more media savvy and I got something a little wrong about semiotics. Any extra thoughts, things to add, um, areas of interest for future episodes. I've got a, got a long list. But honestly, the more something gets mentioned, the faster it'll be made. So if there's an area of the media, an area of culture, or an area of wrestling that you're particularly interested in, let me know and I'll get it made. Also, I'm thinking of doing a reading of Roland Barth's essay in full and releasing it on this feed, sort of between this episode and the next. For me, it's required reading for any wrestling fan. I'll put a link to the PDF in the description for this episode. But yeah, might might release a reading of it just just for the hell of it, you know, just for a bit of fun. I I definitely won't do a French accent. That's that's been made clear. Currently there's no way to financially support this project, but please if you found any of the ideas discussed here interesting at all, then do share the episode with a fellow wrestling fan. And give this podcast a quick review on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or just any podcast platform that allows reviews. Just before I go, last week I got a message from Derek, who asked where I got the idea or inspiration for this podcast. Great question, always happy to answer. Ultimately, it's because, selfishly, I wanted a pro wrestling discussion podcast where I could bring some discourse, but... The reality is so many people, so many talented people do it so well already. There's there's nothing really to add from just a general observance perspective. So I thought I'd combine wrestling discussion with one of my other passions, which is media analysis. Wrestling is a media product, at least I think it is. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And so I thought this would be a way to offer a unique perspective on the events of modern wrestling. Then, as I started planning what this show would sound and look like and, I suppose, feel like, I realized I could just write a series of entertaining essays that it would be possible to just pair a, a concept, a theory, with 
the events of wrestling and and that would flow for i don't know 20 or 30 episodes so yeah thanks for asking derek and thanks for listening new episode in three or four weeks some bonus stuff in the meantime and until we commune again be kind to each other just try that's all it takes just try perfection is a myth and it's for dirty capitalists anyway <laughs>